Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. Well, there is a right or wrong, though. I can't say, well, I'm getting, I'm picking up notes of uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Well, what if you are? But if it's not in it, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, well, I mean, nothing's, nothing's in it. I didn't put chocolate in it. I didn't put cinnamon in it. So these notes that everyone says they pick up in wine, there's not, like, actually notes. No. So I can literally say that. I can say, I'm detecting some Cinnamon Toast Crunch in this wine, yeah. and I'm right. Yeah, I love wine. I love this. This is my this is my new thing. This is Evan's wine class right here. Huge wine guy now. I love it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim, and I'm Evan. And Ben Parsons joins us this week. Ben is the founder and head winemaker at Ordinary Fellow Winery in Palisade, Colorado. He is an anomaly. This guy has been all over the world. He's made wine on no less than three continents and has traveled even beyond that. So we're going to get into everything that has to do with travel and wine, how the two have impacted each other in his life, and why his winery is the place to go for a less pretentious side of wine tasting. But first, Evan, you know what's coming, our famous hot takes. Why don't you start us off this week, buddy? All I want for Christmas, Tim, all I wanted for Christmas or some new hot takes. So I'm going to start off. Let's ask some questions. First one here for you. Speaking of Christmas, why don't we leave Christmas lights up year round? Why don't we just do it? They're beautiful. Put you in a good mood. It costs money to leave those lights up. In fact, I don't Uh, even decorate because of that. I'm also, you know, I'm not like the type of person that's going to celebrate that stuff. But like, I don't even do it. But I, I'm not talking to like the people on the the Christmas light wars show where they have their whole house decked out, like yeah, just like a little string of lights above your window, like or above your door frame. Is that really driving your electric bill up that much? It's not on all the time. It's on at night. That's it. I don't think it's that expensive. But you know what? If you did it all year round, it's going to ruin the charm. It's charming because it only happens for like four or five weeks out of the year. I, I know. I know. I know. You can't put a price on Christmas spirit, though, can you? I mean, I'm looking, I'm sitting here in my apartment, and I have a view of kind of like the town center, and it's just so nice. Like, there's this lights everywhere. There's wreaths. There's a big Christmas tree. Like, there's lights in the trees. It's just like a very festive atmosphere that people like being out in. But the second January first rolls, or no, not January first, second Christmas is over. Whenever they take the tree down, whenever they take the wreaths away the mood noticeably declines it gets depressing and it feels colder i don't even know if it is colder but it feels colder maybe it is because we don't have thousands of lights lighting up the town and it's just it's like why can't we just leave it up it's so nice like just leave it up it is kind of funny because after the holidays you know people take their lights down and you know like then yeah it's less festive and you're just kind of settled in for the long haul of winter at that point you know like right like now winter is on it's not the festive holiday season it's just winter now when you envision the winter in your mind you're not even really thinking about december you're thinking about january and february and the early march like the real doldrums of winter and i the reason that you don't include december in that is because of the holiday season and when you're envisioning the aesthetic of these months december is is all a glow in holiday fun and lights and christmas decorations and hanukkah candles and whatever and it's nice it's bright it's fun it's festive 
January, turn the calendar, done. It's all over. Back into the bleak abyss of winter. Why? Why do it to ourselves? I don't know. I understand you're going to lose the charm. People get sick of it. It's expensive. It's like living in California where you start to stop appreciating the sunny weather all year round. You're in New England. You get three nice months a year in the summer. Everyone takes full advantage of it. Everyone appreciates it. No one takes it for granted. You'd start taking those Christmas lights for granted. They were up all year. So I understand that. But I still think give it give it till like mid January, late January. Leave him up. Leave him out. Throughout, compromise Tim with me. Leave him up throughout January. And then February starts the doldrums. Give us one more month of, of cheer. I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed to it. I'm not going to do it. But there are always those people that do, right? There's always like my neighbor leaves his lights up all the time. So even in the summer, he does it? Uh, he doesn't turn them on in the summer, but I don't think he ever okay. actually takes them down. But they're on throughout the winter. And I can't help... I can't help but suspect that he does it just to rub his joy in everyone else's faces. It kind of almost <laughs> takes it away, you know? Don't you hate when people rub their joy in your face? I th see, this might be a hot take. I think if people have lights, but they don't turn them on, it just looks tacky and cheap. Yeah, it does. Like, it does. You, wait, your whole house is wrapped in lights that are just that are off? Like, that looks terrible. Turn them on, fine. Good for you. Leaving them off, it's trashy. That's for you, Tim's neighbor. Uh, okay, my second question for you was voted by the audience of Matador Network on Instagram. They voted for my hot takes question this week, and it was, are New Year's resolutions bullshit? <laughs> you, you know, the thing is about New Year's resolutions is I feel like everybody kind of forgets about them halfway through the month of January anyway, but... The, the productive takeaway of New Year's resolutions actually happens before New Year's when you're thinking of them and you're journaling and you're coming up with these ways that you're going to better yourself in the new year. And even if only a few of those ways stick, the fact that you took the time to be mindful and do all of those things, that is the productive takeaway of the New Year's resolutions. The actual like, okay, it's January 1st, no more donuts for me. Like that, yes, that part of it is bullshit. I think if New Year's resolutions genuinely help you create a plan for self-improvement by January 1st, I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to eat better. If that kind of strict calendar New Year really turning the page in your life really does it for you, that's great. Can't shit on that. But I don't think it's the healthiest outlook to think that you need to wait for a certain date to roll around to change yourself. Okay, well, I'm going to keep eating like shit until the end of 2021, because then in 2022, I'm going to really turn it around. Right. And then when that doesn't work out, three three weeks into your diet, you you know fall off the wagon. You're like, oh, well, you know, maybe in the summer, I'll, I'll, in the winter, I'll, I'll do what I want. And then by the time summer comes, then I'll really... Assigning these arbitrary dates or seasons or time frames to, to, to self-improvement measures that you can take any time of the year, any day of the week, I don't think is healthy. I think it's a tool for procrastination more than it is a tool for actual actionable self-improvement. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it actually takes discipline. That's what makes the resolutions work. And there's nothing more annoying than the person that's like, it starts tomorrow, tomorrow, like tonight I'm going to eat like hell but tomorrow everything starts for me like i that's so annoying that tomorrow it starts for me attitude have you ever made a new year's resolution 
like have a serious one. No, no, not like a serious, like everything starts now, but I do like reflect on my year and write about what I want to do better in my journal as corny as that sounds. You mentioned the journal earlier that I want to bring it up because you've talked about that on previous episodes. What are you writing in the journal these days, Tim? Don't get too personal. Don't get too, you know, gross or risque, but what are you, what are you writing about? Mostly how my daughter is changing my life, but you know, it's all, it's all reflective stuff. I don't do the like today I did this. And then, you know, so-and-so said this to me and it hurt my feelings. I do it more as like a bulleted list where I'm, you know, outlining what I want to get done and how I want to get it done. And then I put it into action and then I reflect back on that. That's how I do it. So like 75 to 80% is about the podcast? Mostly. Yeah. Sure. Good to hear it. All right. Over to you now. All right. Well, my hot takes for you today are also in the festive holiday spirit, Evan. And the first one I want to know is who is on your holiday shopping list? And I don't need names or specifics, but what I want to know is like, how expansive does your list go? Do you only buy for immediate family? Do you, or are you one of those people that buys a gift for all of your friends and coworkers? Where is the line for you? Well, as coworkers of four years, Tim, I, I, I think you know that my holiday shopping list does not extend to my coworkers. <laughs> but fair enough. But I did just get a T-shirt from you in the mail a couple of weeks. Well, ago. Well, have a new, you know, have a, have so. a baby every year, and you'll get a holiday gift from me. So the interesting thing about being Jewish is that holiday shopping for me is a little different because the gift culture is a little different for Hanukkah. So when I was younger, I would get eight, or I would get eight, maybe even more gifts. I get like two gifts a night. So, you know, I get at least eight presents throughout the course of the week. Now it's kind of changed. I will get one gift, maybe like one larger gift from my parents uh, every year for Hanukkah and I'll give them something. And uh, it's if, if I see them because they live in Colorado now. So it's kind of a tough, you know, some years no gifts are exchanged and or if they are, they're, you know, maybe smaller gifts. So I kind of went from having getting and getting and giving more gifts than most people I know when I was a kid to now getting and giving much, much fewer gifts than everybody I know, um, which is honestly fine with me because I think it's a big stress factor, uh, both psychologically and economically for people around this time of year that I just don't really have to deal with. I have a very small family. I don't have any siblings. So it's just me and my parents really. Uh, so I guess if I had a list, it would be them. And that's pretty much it. I don't really, because we work remotely, as you know, I don't have, we don't do gifts with coworkers. It would be kind of fun to do a secret Santa, like mailing people presents though at Matador. We should bring that up. Won't get very far, but so that was kind of a long, uh, belabored answer to your question, but I, I hope I answered it. No. Yeah, you did. And, uh, I mean, I'm kind of jealous that you only have to buy that one gift, one or two. I mean, I, and not like I go all out, but it's kind of funny, like where I'm at with my I mean, my wife and I will get each other a little something, but where I'm at with my parents is like, we'll basically just get each other a gift card. It's like, a, it's basically a gift card exchange. Like they'll get me like a gift card to REI and I'll get them like a gift card to a restaurant that they want to try or something like that. It's like, there's very little thought that actually goes into it. That's interesting because I actually have a take on gift cards uh, in that I really, I would rather get a physical gift or just cash. I know cash is very impersonal and it's not, it's not really considered an acceptable gift to just to give somebody whereas gift cards are hundred percent, a common acceptable gift. I don't like getting a gift card. It's basically like getting cash, but then like being told you can only spend this cash at a very specific place. 
And the few times I've gotten gift cards, I've been like appreciative, but I also wish I could, instead of having $50 to Best Buy, be like, well, the thing I want at Best Buy is only like 20 bucks. So why I wish I could use the other 30 somewhere else. And the other 30 bucks just sits there on my gift Best Buy card unused for months and months and months. And I forget about it. So I kind of like, I don't know, cash as impersonal as it is or an actual physical gift. I, I don't mind gift cards, you know, whatever. But like I do, I, I would be all in favor of getting rid of the taboo nature of cash gifts because who doesn't want just cash? There's nothing you could ever give somebody that's going to make them more stoked as far as like a, a, a consumer facing gift than cash. Yeah, no, and it's 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 impersonal and it doesn't take much thought. And I understand, like, I would never give a girlfriend or a wife or I don't know someone you're really close with cash because I think that's fodder for a huge argument. <laughs> but actually, funny story: my uh, my mom, no, my dad once gave my mom a toaster for Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, uh, me and your dad could be good friends. And she immediately started crying. Just burst into tears. This I is once, a story that I, I've, I wasn't there for this, but I heard the story. I once gave my now wife a bread maker from the thrift store for her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, <laughs> this was the first year we were dating. First, know, so. wow, that's the, that's ballsy. See, this is like post being married for like 10 years. First year dating, you give her a bread maker. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, Tim. And a bread maker from the thrift store, not even like a new. That is romantic. Uh, but hey, we're married now with a baby, so it all worked out. Um, my next gift is kind of along those lines, and I, 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 I know you're a you're a bachelor, but if if you were really trying to wow somebody, what is the limit of spending on a gift that doesn't seem douchey or like you're trying to like impress them with how far you've gone? I think it's fifty dollars for every month you've been together, with a cap at two years. So that would mean I have to buy Alicia a $12,000 gift. A cap at two years, I said. So after two years, you don't... Yes, but so $50 times two years is $12,000. No, it's... Hold on. Or is my math just way wrong? No, it's not. It is. That is... Oh, no, wait. It's $2,400. Yeah. Okay. I stick by it. Sorry, my math is usually really good. <laughs> like actually, twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> if 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 so, but, but even twenty four hundred, like holy shit, like you know, I don't know if I'm buying jewelry this year. We just had a kid, and I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying you have to go that high, but I think that yeah, this is more. This question more applies to when you're in the early stages and you don't. Uh, as I tend to think that the more expensive gifts come when you're earlier in the relationship. Yeah, that's true. Rather than like when you've been married, like my parents get each other socks now yeah. or like cheap t-shirts. But back when they were first together, I'm sure it was more jewelry, more expensive things. So yeah, but I think $50. So if you've been together for six months, six times 50, Tim, quick, quick. What is that's it? That's $300. And that's reasonable. Three, $300 is reason. That's a very reasonable gift for your partner. That's what I'm saying. The $50 per month rule. Lock it down. Remember, people. $300 for six months. Or excuse me, $50 a month for six months. Ask Alicia. Get back to me what she says. I'm curious what her thoughts are. Yeah, I, w- I will. I You know, it's funny because I actually gave her at least part of her gift last night, which was this cookbook that she asked for, which was an expensive cookbook. Was it a $12,000 cookbook? Absolutely not. No. From bread maker to cookbook. Yes. On that note, we will get into it with Ben and we'll see you 
on the other side. Okay, Ben, founder of the Ordinary Fellow Winery here in Palisade, Colorado, and a longtime, uh, basically, champion of Colorado wine. He's made wine all over the world, and we're going to get into uh, the travel aspect of wine, what he's doing today, and what is the story behind his uh, coming to America to do this. So, Ben, can, can you start us off by letting us know a little bit about how you got into wine, what it was that hooked you, uh, and what started this whole journey for you? Yeah, I... Um... I first got into wine, uh, selling wine in central London. Um, I'd graduated from my undergrad in animal science and, um, and I saw a job advertised, uh, selling wine. I was kind of fascinated by it and, um, went to work for this kind of fine Bordeaux Burgundy wine merchant selling like thousand pound bottles of wine to very rich people. Um, who could afford to spend a thousand pounds on a bottle of wine? And they, uh, the wine merchant was called Leighton's. It was pretty funny. It was um, it was right in near Sloan Square in in London. And like Naomi Campbell, Helena Christensen, they were like our clients. And so they would come in and they would drop you know fifteen thousand pounds on a case of wine. It was it was kind of insane. And I was delivering this wine on like a a push bike. Um, with a case of wine, like in the, uh, between the handlebars, like delivering it to people's houses, you know, and um, got introduced to some really interesting wines. So um, kind of piqued my curiosity and I, um, I applied for a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation to go to Australia and study enology, which is the chemistry of winemaking. And um, I, I won the scholarship, fortunately, and uh, yeah, moved to um, Australia to to go back to university to study the chemistry of uh, of winemaking. It's interesting that you, so you went from the UK to, the, to Australia and being an American and already struggling to differentiate between UK and Australian accents, you are like an anomaly in a way. You've got kind of, you know, the UK base with, with undertones of Australia in there. It's, it's awesome. I think you, uh, you end up kind of picking up language you know wherever you move to make it easier to communicate like when i first moved to the states i would ask for a glass of water and people don't understand what that means here you have to like be like water yeah i need some water like uh but in england we're like water we need some water please i'll take a glass of that but yeah so i mean i lived in australia in south australia and uh ended up seeing a job advertised for a winemaker in palisade colorado and I had no idea there were wineries in Colorado. And um, I, I literally applied for a job via email, not really thinking that much about it. And um, got an email back three days later offering me the job, not even interviewing me. And, and I moved from uh, London to Grand Junction on the Western Slope on the uh, 9th of September, 2001. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a bit of a culture shock because um, you know, obviously London's what a city of 14, 15 million people and Grand Junction is a little bit smaller than that. Um, a little bit. Yeah. I, you know, I'm curious because it seems like, you know, being a, being a master wine or a Psalm or, or anybody that does this for a living, the, the discipline of the senses, particularly smell is so above what most people 
are able to comprehend. I'm wondering what it when when you're training to do this, how the hell do you tell that oh this this grape was grown here and it was grown in this year and 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 it differentiates itself from this other grape because of this? What what is the first step to being able to do something like that? I think that's really repetition, right? Like um smell is, you know, arguably the 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 sense that is most linked to memory and so the more the more you familiarize yourself with drinking wine it's not a bad thing like the more frequently you drink wine the more likely you are to be able to to pick out um and identify different characteristics so you know that's a good excuse to drink more wine i guess and uh just to kind of you know when you smell wine it really sometimes it like triggers something in your memory and you're like oh what is that you know and and usually when you're with a group of people tasting someone will someone will say oh it's this and you're like oh yeah it is that i get it yeah i remember that so full disclosure i know nothing i know less than nothing about wine i've always found it to be a really tough field to kind of crack into i've done even one or two wine based trips uh abroad and i still know nothing about wine (laughs) it's like any other hobby in that there's a lot to grasp about it but it's almost like an educational discipline like taking you know learning a whole new language so what's been like the most difficult part about cracking into this industry uh even at at your earliest stages you know I, i believe there are deliberate barriers to entry like which is you know, which has made wine, you know, quite difficult to understand, right? Like, and, you know, there's all these kind of flowery descriptives and, and adjectives, etc. But at the end of the day, it's do you, do you like it or do you not like it? It can be very pretentious and, and like, um, you know, very insular, like, and, and, but I don't think it is like that from a, um, from the winemaking production side of it. They're just a, bunch of people that enjoy getting their hands dirty working long hours and trying to make the very best product they can just like a just like a chef or something you know they're really they're really trying to distill something good out of out of the best fruit that they can grow and farm and then make sure that that fruit and the flavor and the characteristics of that fruit of that fruit are translated into a, a bottled product that someone way more intellectual than us can sit down and start having conversations about, you know, like, and, and sure you, you have, you have the ability to get like really anal about it, you know, and that's because I suppose, because it has such, it has, has, has such fascinating history, right? Like the history of wine having been made for 8,000 years. Um, you know, there's only one industry older than the wine industry. I'll let, you know, like I'll let you figure that one out. I wanted, I wanted to say, so on that note, you're you're talking about you know the pretentiousness etc. When I'm tasting wine and I'm actually drinking a glass of uh, your riesling right now, I'll toast to that. People have a tendency when they're in public places to start calling out flavors and aromas in the wine, and I've never been able to identify a pattern in what people are saying. And I highly suspect that the vast majority of them are completely full of shit. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Is, is there a specific aroma that you're going to pull out of a wine that is correct, or is it really all up to interpretation, as the uh, you know the the tasting guys will lead you to believe? Whatever, yeah, you're you're never. Um, it's unlikely that you're going to be smelling and tasting the same 
what someone else is tasting, everyone's sense of smell and taste is different. Uh, you might pick up on some similar um, favorable or non-favorable characteristics, uh, but there's also like no right or wrong. You know, that's- well, there is a right or wrong though. I can't say, well, I'm getting, I'm picking up notes of uh, cinnamon toast crunch here. But what if you are? But if it's not in it, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, it can't well, I mean, nothing's, nothing's in it. I didn't put chocolate in it. I didn't put cinnamon in it. I didn't like it. Oh, wait, wait, okay. So like the notes, so, so these notes that everyone says they pick up in wine, there's not like actually notes of like, no. well, the, the winemaker threw these things in as ingredients and this is, these are the right notes to pick up. So I can literally say that I could say I'm, I'm detecting some cinnamon toast crunch in this wine yeah. and I'm right. Yeah. Yeah, I love wine. I love this. This is my this is my new thing. Yeah, you, this is Evan's wine class right here. Huge wine guy now. I love it. Right? There's the, it, it. There's no. It's not like beer where you're like, oh, I'm going to throw some other stuff in the mash tun. But there's no other added ingredients. It's it's really just the 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 grape, and as you ferment, different uh, aromas and, and and flavor components come to the come to the foreground, and Different people will will smell and taste those and distinguish those differently based on the memory of flavor and aroma that they have established over there. You'd have to be very wrong to be wrong. You know? <laughs> I yeah, I, this is amazing. This is amazing. I love this. You're you're uh, Evan. The next time you drink wine, you're gonna just start explaining everything about it to whoever you're with, and they're gonna not be able to tell you that you're wrong. I can say whatever the fuck I want, and I'm right. I wish I knew this at that one wine tasting I accidentally stumbled upon and sounded like an idiot at. This is <laughs> mind blowing. Anyway, well, since we since we've uh, touched on the uh, touched on the pretentiousness aspect a little bit and the fact that now there's no wrong answer. That's my middle name. No wrong answer. Love that. This there's a parallel between I've always thought between wine people and writers. So Tim and I are writers, and as a writer, I've always felt like other writers are the worst in terms of thinking that they know more than everyone else being condescending being pretentious do you feel that way about wine people i feel i feel like there are certainly people that um that talk about wine um in that way in that they're that they know more about wine and therefore they are better than you um but I also think there's people that know a lot about wine that are very open and inclusive and um, very keen to, to educate people about it. Um, so I think you, you see both of it and, it and it's just like there's there's cool people and there's people that suck, right? Like it's um, you, it's the same in every in every field, you know, but there's a, I, I think, you know, as a winemaker, you want someone to just walk away after they've they've had a glass of your wine and just feel better and, and, um, you, you know, have enjoyed drinking it. And, and, and of course, like some, something about drinking alcohol provokes conversation. Right. And that's what's, it opens up the, um, the, the mind and, and, and the mouth and, uh, you, you start having good conversation. And I think that's one of the, like the great levelers in, in having a glass of wine at the end of the day is, is the, inevitably you start feeling good and you start you know talking and it seems it seems natural of course you can you can have too much to drink and then that that can go the wrong the wrong way and you start talking shit about people but you know um i think for the for the most part that 
there's just something very very relaxing and and social about about consuming wine i i mean tim is six glasses deep right now you should, you should try <laughs> talking to him when he's sober impossible almost six glasses i you know what i want to i really want to touch on and the, and the real reason why i was so excited to have you come on the show is because you've made wine in so many places around the world i'm so curious to dive into your thoughts uh, of, of travel as someone who's viewing the world through the lens of wine what what are some of the places and experiences that stand out the most to you uh as a winemaker and as somebody who is passionate about about drinking and making wine what where should where can people go to kind of replicate some of your experiences and what should they look for yeah you know when i got into wine it was it was one of the main reasons was to travel um because you have the season in the northern hemisphere and then you have a season in the southern hemisphere right so essentially as a as a vintage winemaker you could work three months say in france travel around europe for three months and then go down to south america or south africa or australia and new zealand again work your ass off for three months save some money and then travel again for three months you know and that was that was the the kind of goal behind me getting into wine when i did and wine making in particular and you know life didn't quite pan out like that of course <laughs> you can't travel for like your entire life i mean although i wish i could but uh, i got a lot of my traveling done uh, before the age of 30 which I feel very fortunate about, but um, I thought you were only like twenty six. <laughs> yeah, not not quite. I may, I may act like it. Sometimes. Tim tells that to all of our guests. <laughs> you know, one of the, my fondest moments actually that kind of really cemented wine making for me as a career was um, was being in New Zealand in the Marlborough Sounds um, and sitting on top of a six thousand gallon. Uh, stainless steel tanker, filling it with Sauvignon Blanc juice, watching the sunset over the Marlborough Sound, and just thinking, this is pretty fucking great. You know, like, this is amazing. Like, is life any better than this? What I'm curious, what is the place, if you've been anywhere in the world that you expected to have amazing wine that really let you down? Um, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, um, or a place with a reputation for really good wine that didn't quite meet your expectations. It, it's funny. Like, I think when you're traveling, like, even if you have like a bad wine experience, because you were traveling, it made it better, right? Like just the fact that you were, you were out doing something, seeing, experiencing something new. Uh, you know, when I look back, some of those wines that I tried, you know, maybe even in the South of France. They probably weren't that, that great, um, but just because you were there with the winemaker and you didn't speak a word of French and he had invited you into his home and was just pouring random wines, they taste, They probably at the time, they tasted fantastic. But if you bought a bottle of it, like to go home and then you opened it, you're like, hmm, it's not quite as good as I remember, you know, when, the, when me and this winemaker were trying to have a conversation in French and I didn't really speak a ton of the language. And, but it was just that, that moment that elevated it. That's it. That's interesting. Yeah, I've actually noticed that in other things for traveling. Like, I'll take out my iPhone to take a picture of some mountains, and then I'll I'll think if this if these mountains were back home in Massachusetts, would I care to take a picture of them? Like, are they actually beautiful, or am I just doing it because I'm in Spain and they're Spanish mountains and they're exotic and unique? 
And then I'll always ask myself that before I take any picture abroad. Am I just doing this because I'm abroad or is this actually a photo worthy moment? Yeah. I mean, it's the same with, it's the same with food as well, isn't it? Like you go out to a good restaurant and, and you, um, in your hometown and, and you hope to, you hope to be wowed by food, you know, but, but if you were having that same dish, you know, in, in like cassoulet or something in, in France, in Toulouse, where the home of cassoulet, like, and you're out drinking a nice bottle of wine in a medieval city, it's something about that just makes it taste better, you know, versus just going to the corner restaurant. Yeah, no, it's, you're like predisposed to like it. Like I remember I've always loved the, uh, the jambalaya from Chili's. Mm. First time I ever had jambalaya was at Chili's. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even know what it was. I had jambalaya. I was like, this is delicious. So I was really looking forward to my trip to New Orleans and uh, the bayou a few years ago. And I was like, I'm going to have jambalaya, like real authentic jambalaya. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to love it. And honestly, I liked, I, I, I like tasted it. And I'm like, I just think I like the one from Chili's better. And I wanted to, I was like so convinced I was going to like the chill, the, uh, the jambalaya in the bayou. Cause it was just in the bayou. I'm like, well, it must be, it must be the best. Right. Not necessarily, not necessarily. I was giving them all the benefit of the doubt. And I just, didn't like it as much. You're, uh, you had high expectations and they, they weren't met. That's something. Yeah. No. And it's probably because Chili's shoves a bunch of sugar and artificial ingredients that shouldn't be in jambalaya in there. So they're kind of cheating. But I want to also ask you, what is the, uh, the dumbest question that someone's ever asked you about wine or that's you ever heard somebody ask about wine? Because on the one, uh, winery tour that I took and tasting I did, I was that person or I felt like that person because of how much of an expert everybody was around me. And I know there's no dumb questions. There's no wrong answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's a wrong, there's some, there's some dumb questions out there. So any, any that you've heard? You know, I, I think the one that, and I think you already, you kind of already asked it earlier. It was, like, yes. it, was it was kind of like, well, when do you add the the strawberries and the raspberries and the the blackcurrant flavors? And, that, the... and honestly, that's my single most enlightening moment from the interview. I I can't I for years I thought there was like a guy adding all these notes and ingredients. So it's, that's it. Ask the dumb questions because that's how you learn. I love it. Um, it is it's funny though. Like you, when you're on winery tours and some some wineries like hire you know high school kids to give their winery tours and you're the winemaker in the background and and the kids pointing at like a tank and saying this is the press and they're, they're pointing at the pieces of equipment and they don't even know what they're talking about they're, they're naming the entirely wrong piece of equipment and what it does and you're like it's like the blind leading the blind you know it's, it's pretty funny that would actually be really funny tim like a little web series uh winery tours or vineyard tours by someone who has no idea what they're talking about and just seeing how they try to explain things Evans and then like, do the little aside interviews with the people on the tour being like yeah so this tour is a little strange uh see how long it takes them to catch on right on well thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate it ben and uh ben parsons founder of the ordinary fellow winery here in palisade colorado where can people find you online yeah, you can you can come to the the winery, of course. We're uh, downtown Palisade, two hundred two Peach Avenue, next to the um, Palisade Brewery. Uh, you can find us in Grand Junction at uh, Bin Seven Hundred Seven, uh, Josh's Restaurant. 
And of course, uh, all the, the wine stores, Andes, Redlands, Fishers. And then on the front range, we're at um, you know a bunch of restaurants, Table 6, Cafe Terracotta, Truffle Table, uh, Sodo, uh, and of course, a bunch of wine stores, Amendment 21, Argonaut. I mean, all over Denver, really, you could find us. Um, so yeah, just uh, you know, really appreciate the, the opportunity and I uh, hope people go out and try and try some wine. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you. Okay, well, we're here in the news of the day segment after a nice talk with uh, Ben from Ordinary Fellow. So the first news piece I want to talk about today, Evan, is a rundown that Matador published the other day about the world's most expensive spa treatments. And I, I want to ask you this. I'm going to guess that your annual bathroom and personal care budget is somewhere around $75. Is that just from looking at me? Is that just like a, you're doing a little once over how I look right now? And you're yep. like, All right, this guy's going to spend more than yep. 50 bucks on his personal maintenance. Okay, go on. Uh, and the world's most expensive spa treatment anywhere in the world taking place at the uh, Jumeirah Zabil Sarai Hotel in Dubai, $6,800. What would it take to get you to fork over $6,800 uh, for a spa treatment? Uh, so, I mean, th- this $6,800, just so everyone knows, gets you a 24-karat gold mask at the spa. Uh, it starts with a cleanser and exfoliate. Then the gold chain mask is applied using an electric current. It sounds painful. Uh, afterward, you enjoy an Arabian gold hammam and a rose oil jacuzzi, followed by a champagne and caviar lunch and a premium, this is the best part, gift bag. A premium gift bag. That's what you're getting. So $6,800, what would I pay $6,800 for? Absolutely nothing, Tim. I... My experience in spas is incredibly limited for a reason. I just, I don't, maybe a a $6,800 spa is what I need though, because I'm like incapable of relaxing at spas. That's my problem. Like getting a massage, it's awkward. You're on this table with someone you don't know. They're like, you can't talk to them because that kind of ruins the whole relaxation thing. It's like, it's painful. Like the whole idea is getting the knots out of your back. I apparently have a lot of them. I've had two massage, two professional massages ever in my whole life, both incredibly painful, felt like they were trying to extract information from a terrorist, not like doing something that's supposed to be enjoyable and relaxing to me. So I don't know, maybe this 24 karat gold mask is what I need because I just can't seem to relax. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about it, the way that it's worded here in this article and that this spa treatment presents itself is you may actually be worth a little more money afterwards, not only because of the premium gift bag, but because there's now gold in your skin. This is 2021, infusing people with gold as a benefit of a spa treatment. I don't know. This is all This is all a lot of frills. It's almost like going paying to stay at an ice hotel. Sounds awesome in concept but not actually comfortable when you're trying to sleep on a block of solid ice. So I feel like a lot of this, you're paying for the ambiance rather than something that's actually relaxing. I can get as relaxed for 200 bucks as I can for 6,000, I think. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you're paying to be able to say that you did it, but I've got to say that if I was going to do one of these five, so there's one in Dubai, one in California, one in Abu Dhabi, 
one in the Maldives, and one in Florida. If I had to pick one, I'd pick the uh, Mandarin Oriental Spa in Abu Dhabi for two reasons. A, I've always wanted to stay at a Mandarin Oriental Hotel. I think they're supposed to be the world's best. And it's Abu Dhabi, like Dubai, you know it's going to be completely over the top and ridiculous. Sure. And have you had a spa treatment before? Like, have you had a massage? I have done massages while abroad many times and, uh, well, I mean, maybe like five times. Um, and when I was 19 and broke my femur in a car accident, I had massages every week for like three or four months because it was paid for by the insurance company of the person who wrecked the car. Did you get into a car accident specifically so that you could have an excuse to get massages every day of the week? Uh, no, no. I didn't Slash, would you that recommend that, that as a strategy to somebody? I wouldn't recommend breaking your femur, but maybe if all you're doing is like cracking your little toe or something, it might be worth it. All right. Well, our second news story for today is the most amazing Christmas window displays in the world. This is a very popular piece that we update at Matador every year to include some of the uh, coolest department store window displays. And a lot of creative energy goes into these. There's uh, Macy's, uh, New York City. There's Saks Fifth Avenue, Lafayette Galleries in Paris. Um, Harrods in London, of course, and a few others. So, uh, what? What I, I used to I've, I used to write this piece a few years ago and have to update it and look for pictures. And people are obsessed with it. People love it. But window shopping for me has always been a bit of a torturous exercise. I know it's it's fun. It's, it's just like it's decorations. Decorations never hurt anyone. You know, walking down the street, it's nice to see a, a an all lit up Christmassy decoration in a window. But in general, window shopping. As a concept, it always made me think of and reflect on and think how bizarre it is. Do you window shop, Tim? Do you enjoy window shopping? No, actually, I could think of a few things that would annoy me worse. Uh, you know, I value productivity and efficiency That's and window true. shopping is you the do. exact opposite mm. of those things. So I, 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 if I'm going to shop, I'm going to shop. Tim takes the shopping very serious. And I'm all about decorations. That's great. Love Christmas decorations. But... I just feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna shop, shop. You know, like you said, if you're gonna if if you are there to buy, if you're hitting the streets, you want to buy something. It's Christmas time, like you want to buy some presents. Go into the store. Like right. just, you gotta, you no, can't, agree. you can't yeah. just look at the like six percent of the inventory that they put in the window that they're kind of like trying to push on you. No, go in the store, try stuff on, do whatever you gotta do. I I think window shopping. I guess I'm defining it as intentionally going out walking around looking at windows not intending to buy anything but just reveling in the the fun of saying well what if what if i bought this like oh i could buy this what yes. if i saved up and bought this? like that that's torturous to me because then it reminds me of all the things that i don't have that i maybe want but can't afford and maybe it would it compel me to buy something that i can't afford and it's just i, I don't know i don't like it yeah, you know, I, I think you've really honed in on it there because that's exactly what it is. I can appreciate the beauty of the displays as a luring in tactic to get you into the store to then actually do your shopping. You know, what is the point of just looking and not acting? Yeah, let it let it let the window display do its job. Let it lure you in, you know, go in, wander around, find something you like. Like who has time to just walk around and just look? Uh, like, yeah. What, what is what is the point of that? Uh, we, I often find myself torn between this live and let live philosophy that I sometimes advocate for on the show and this almost uh, aggrieved 
stance that I take on things like that are harmless, like window shopping. Like, who cares? If people want to window shop, let them window shop. Who am I to get like aggravated by it? But yet, it, it, it riles me up for some reason. That's I feel like it riles you up too, Tim. So, live and let live. Happy Christmas. Enjoy window shop. Do whatever you want. Uh, it's not hurting anyone. I don't get it, but do what makes you happy. I, I agree. I think I tend to agree with that. Thanks for listening to No Black Updates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.